I want to show you something. This little thing right here is called an Otsman. That stands for OTS Manual. And when I see it, that's the response I almost have. <laughs> this little booklet informed every single move I made at Officer Training School. Uh, you, you can't see it from there, but it's, it's taped all throughout because I needed it to hold up. It's because every person at all times, at any time, you are not engaged in a specific task, you are to be studying it as such. You can move your hand, change the page, but then you need to move your hand directly back and you are to keep your head up. It would be much more comfortable to be like this, but we're not cool with being comfortable in the military, so we go up. Every single moment you needed to be reading it if you weren't doing something else. And this little booklet just shapes your life at OTS. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here are seven approved responses when addressed by staff. Yes, sir. No, sir. Sir, I do not understand. Sir, I do not know. Sir, may I ask a question? Sir, may I make a statement? Sir, no excuse. Here is how you greet others. First off, from zero hundred hours, that's midnight to 1159, you're to say good morning. From 1200 hours to 1659, that's 459, you're to say good afternoon. And from 1700 hours, that's five o'clock, to 2359, that's 1159, you're to say good evening. Simple enough. Now, after you say good morning or good afternoon or good evening, you need to either say sir or ma'am or ladies or gentlemen or some combination of the two. And how that works out is as follows. Greeting order of procedure. Render the greeting of the day to the highest ranking individual first when approaching a group, i.e. a male major walking with a female captain with good morning, sir, good morning, ma'am. If the individuals are of the same rank, greet the females first. Good morning, ma'am. Good morning, sir. If the individuals are not of the same gender, greet them as a group with ladies or gentlemen, i.e. a male major and a captain will be greeted with good morning, gentlemen. If the rank is indeterminable, greet the female first, i.e. a group of four ladies, four males and two females in PT gear, physical training gear. Greet them with good morning, ladies. Good morning, gentlemen. So there you go. You know what to do. On and on it goes. From how to conduct yourself in the dining facility, to the classroom, to dorm procedures, to safety instructions, to marching. The Otsman is what you conform to, and the Otsman is how you understand even your own existence. At the OTS, at OTS, there are no lawyers, there are no chaplains, there are no pilots, there are no intel officers. You may become one of those things one day, but at OTS, the Otsman says, you are nothing but a puke. No, you are an officer trainee. That's your reality. And they are serious about it. If you were to look at section 1.22, it lines out commander's review. So if you don't abide by it, you are subject to disciplinary action up to and including immediate dismissal from the program. We had a pararescueman. That's Air Force Special Forces. They like rescue Navy SEALs when they get in a bad way. He had over 10 years of service. He got a little headstrong. 
He violated the Otsman's call to quarters, which is when you have to be back in the dorm. He violated it twice on the last night to sneak out, not to do anything bad, but to see his wife, and he didn't graduate. He got booted because he thought he didn't have to conform to the Otsman. You really have to conform to this. It defines you. You have to embrace it and you have to let it shape you. This is your standard during your 60-day pleasure cruise at OTS. That's what Marines might call it. Matt laughed the loudest. Now, I share this with you because it highlights a key truth in our text. As officer trainees, our lives are shaped by the Otsman. As Christians, our lives are shaped by the cross. Sometimes we think about the cross as a message to be believed, how to be saved. But it is so much more than that. It is a pattern to be followed. Like the Otsman is an all-encompassing reality for trainees during OTS. The cross is an all-encompassing reality for Christians during life. It defines who we are. It informs how we think and how we live. It is what we need to embrace, to soak up, and to be shaped by, and we must be shaped by it if we are to hear from the Lord Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want to hear that? Then turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, you're there. When I say four, that's big, bold. When I say six, that's little. Chapter, verse. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and are buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. 
But I will come soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is just a sharp text. Do you feel it? Do you feel it when I, when I read it? It just, it bites, okay? Paul's not kidding around with this text. And, and why is he not kidding around with this text? It's because they're being shaped more by the world than they are by the cross. And so Paul has two things to say. Number one, a rebuke for their world-shaped life. And number two, a call to repent. Those are the two main points of my sermon. And if you're helped by a sermon outline or you know where we are and where we're going, you can just look at your outline right there. Two points, rebuke for a world-shaped life and repent. So how are the Corinthians being shaped by the world? First thing he points out is their thinking. Read 6 and 7 with me again. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? So the problem is the Corinthians are arrogant. Recall from chapter 1 and chapter 3 that they've, they've locked on to their favorite big-time minister. They've claimed allegiance to him. They... They diss those who claim allegiance to another. And everybody thinks they're better than everybody else because they follow a better minister than everybody else. And that's why Paul taught earlier in three. He said, guys, me and Apollos and Peter, we are, we are sowers scattering the seed of the gospel. We sow the gospel. God grants the growth. Don't exalt in us. And certainly don't. Don't exalt yourselves over one another based on your allegiance to one of us. Well, that's crazy, but it just it highlights the fallenness of man in Adam, doesn't it? So what we want to do is we want to just kind of be higher up on the ladder than the next person. In one sense, how weird is it that they are exalting themselves over each other based upon who they follow... But it makes sense because we can turn anything around into a source of arrogance and self-congratulation, can't we? (laughs) A little girl who ties her shoes thinks that she's better than the one who can't, right? I was at the dentist recently. The hygienist asked me how I'm doing flossing my teeth. I never floss my teeth. I told her that. She said, well, you've got great teeth. I noticed a little while later, I'm ruminating how, on how excellent my teeth are in comparison to everyone else's. We are so easily and strangely desirous to be better, even if it has something to do with just your teeth. I hope you don't think poorly of me. (laughs) But this is a problem for two reasons. It's a problem because it goes beyond what is written. Paul says, learn not to go beyond what is written. What does he mean by that? Well, what's written is probably what's written in the Old Testament about the folly of pridefulness and boasting and self-exaltation. 
But then the real bottom line is this. For who sees anything different in you? Now, this is a rhetorical question, which means the answer is unsaid, because it doesn't need to be said, because the answer is nobody. Nobody sees anything different in you. In other words, you're not more special than any of your brothers and sisters in Christ, but why? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The real reason why the Corinthians' boasting is so foolish is because the life they have, the spiritual gifts they have, the teachers they have, everything they have is a gift, a God-given gift to them. And he's taught this before, 2.12. We have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand all the things freely given to us by God. 321, let no man boast in men, for all things are yours. How are all things ours? Through our union with Jesus Christ. In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In Christ is mercy and grace and eternal life. Christ is exalted above all. Christ rules over all. And through union with Christ by faith, God gives you all these things. This is why Ephesians chapter 1 explodes with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So the reason why boasting and arrogance doesn't make any sense is because what do you have that you didn't receive? Answer, nothing. Everything I have is a gospel gift. Forgiveness is a gospel gift. Eternal life is a gospel gift. Freedom from sin's penalty and power is a gift. Wisdom and knowledge and righteousness and sanctification and redemption and mercy and grace and even, even faith. The faith that you exercise to lay hold upon Jesus Christ, that faith is a gift according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Oh. What's more, it's not only spiritual things. It's not only spiritual things that are a gift. Literally, everything is a gift. Your birth and life are a gift. The food on your table and the roof over your head are a gift. Your family and your friends are a gift. Your work is a gift. This church is a gift. And sometimes we lose sight of this, right? Sometimes we think that we do something to earn some of these things, but that's partly why Job went through what he thought went through, so, so that we're helped by his clarity. Do you remember what he said? When everything was taken away, He had clarity. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is nothing you have. There is nothing you are. That is not a gift given to you through God and the gospel. And brothers and sisters, nothing severs the root of our pride more than this. Amen? That's why God says that the gospel has got to shape your thoughts. It's not shaping the Corinthians' thoughts right now. Hence this rebuke. 
Is it shaping your thoughts this morning, brothers and sisters? Are you impressed with yourself? Or are you impressed with Jesus? Do you think much of yourself? Or do you think much of Jesus? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The gospel makes a humble people. So the first way in which the Corinthians are being shaped more by the world than the cross has to do with their thoughts. So their thinking just isn't in line with the gospel. It's prideful. It's arrogant. And the second thing has to do with their lives. Their living isn't in line with the gospel. And when I say living, I just mean their overall approach and perspective to life. So just look at verse 8 again. Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would to God you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now this is just a little bit hard to understand. First off, I want you to know that the Apostle Paul is being sarcastic. The sarcasm is strong with this one at this point in time. This is not a compliment. And second, it appears the Corinthians had their balance of the already and not yet aspects of the kingdom off. Follow me. The Bible teaches two realities about the kingdom of God. And one is that it's already here. Jesus has risen from the dead and Jesus has begun his reign. He did say to his disciples after his resurrection, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. Further, we've been transferred into his kingdom already. Colossians 1, 13 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's an already aspect to the kingdom of God. But there's also a not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. We are not yet experiencing the fullness of our salvation. 1 Peter 1.5, we wait for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 2 Peter 3.13, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So many things about the Christian life, we just have a, a down payment of, Right? The Spirit is a down payment of the inheritance that is ours to come. So there's the not yet. And here's the temptation for churches in every age. Dial in. It's to live like we're further along in the redemptive timeline than we actually are. I think that's what's going on with the Corinthians. They're grabbing a hold of promises associated with the future coming kingdom. Where we will have all we want, Christ. Where we will be rich, through Christ. Where we will reign as heirs with Christ. They're grabbing all those promises and they're saying, those things belong to me right now. And, this is important, they're applying those promises in a Christless and self-serving way. Already you have what you want You're not spiritually hungry. Already you have become rich. You're not seeking spiritual wealth through Christ. Without us, you have become kings. You've become comfortable. You've become self-satisfied. You've become smug. You've become proud. This is why Paul rebukes them. I would that you would reign. 
so that we would reign with you. He wants them to experience the real reign of Christ in a coming day where all the church will share in that glory. So what's the basic gist right here? Everything is about them. And everything is about now. Their outlook on life is shaped by the world. And hence, they're about themselves more than Jesus Christ. And they're focused on the good life now more than eternal life later. But the gospel says otherwise. If a world-shaped life lives for the here and now, what does a gospel-shaped life look like? Well, Paul holds himself and the other apostles out as examples. So just pick back up in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. My goodness. What a contrast between the apostles' lives and the Corinthian lives, right? This is the universal sign for I'm tracking, okay? This whole section is a contrast. Here's you. Here's us. And the overall feel is your life is totally different from our life. So he just said to the Corinthians, already you have what you want. Already you're rich. Already you're like kings. Compare that to us, verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. This is a triumphal procession image that he's got going on. So in that day, a, a victorious general would, would parade defeated captives through the streets in a victory celebration, and then following which the enemies of the emperor would be slain. The apostles then have become a spectacle to the world, a spectacle like those in the gladiatorial arena for both angels and human beings. Yet they've become a spectacle, not of triumph and exaltation, but of, of suffering and death and defeat. So Corinthians, your, your prosperous and triumphalism in the world right now, that's, that's where you are, but where we are is like men sentenced to death in the world right now. That's a huge contrast. In verse 10, he's sarcastic. They aren't actually wise, but they think themselves wise. Paul is weak and suffering, having no status in society, but they are strong. Paul is dishonored in society, but they are honored. In verse 11, he catalogs his sufferings. He says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and are buffeted and homeless. In verse 12, we see that Paul doesn't despise working with his hands. We labor working with our own hands. The Corinthians would have looked down on this because in their day, whoever was wise and influential wouldn't have to do something like that. 
And in contrast to the the quarreling and harshness and jealousy amongst the Corinthians, look at how the apostles respond to ill treatment. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And then just like he began by emphasizing their lowliness in the eyes of the world, he closes out with the same. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Quite a contrast. Quite a contrast between the Corinthians and the apostles. The Corinthians live as though their life is about now. Best life now. Paul and the apostles lay down their lives now in preparation for their best life later. And this, of course, brothers and sisters, is exactly what Jesus taught. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 9.23 This truth is what the Corinthians are missing and what the apostles are modeling. Life is not about blessing and ease and honor now. Life is about self-denial, death to sin, and an overall perspective that says this. Please hear me. My portion, my good life, it's not here. It's there. This is the cross-shaped life. This is the cross-shaped life. It's not about now. It's about later. This truth is incredibly important for us as Christians. This truth is incredibly important for us as Christians. It helps us see clearly, theologically, see things like the prosperity gospel for the lie that it is. Prosperity gospel basically teaches that if you're a Christian, things are going to go well for you. You're going to be blessed financially. You're going to be blessed in regards to your health. You're going to be blessed overall. If Paul heard that, I think he'd just be like, what? So it helps us see clearly theologically, but it also helps us see our lives clearly. So let me just speak a very direct word to those of you who are weighed down with hardship right now. To those who are sick, to those who are grieving because of loss, to those who are battling your sin, to those who are discouraged by the rampantness and open celebration of sin all around us, this is the norm for the Christian life. This is the not yet. This is the time when we struggle. This is the time when you are going to weep. This is the time when you are going to be held in dishonor. This is the time where you are going to be seen a fool. This is the time where you are going to hunger and thirst. This is the time when you are going to be weak. This life, beloved church, is not your portion. In your struggle, do not think something is wrong or that God has done you wrong. You are walking the path of the cross. You are being shaped 
by the cross. This is the path your Savior walked. This is the path the apostles walked. This is the experience you will walk. It is hard. But it is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. And because the reward is unbelievable. Keep your eye on that ball. I, I have the heartache for some of you. Because I can tell that sometimes your suffering is made even worse than it already is. Because in your heart you've lost sight of the truth. And you want life to be what it isn't supposed to be right now. It is hard. That's what it is right now. But it will be worth it. And so my hope is that your response to these things in your heart is is a weighty yes. And if it's not, then you need to repent. And that's where Paul goes next. Would you turn your eyes to verse 14? I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. This is Paul's fatherly assurance. He said these things, and by these things, I'm, I'm reaching all the way back to 110 when he began this section. He said these things not just to make them feel bad. Like a father with his child, his goal is not merely to convince him that his behavior is egregious. His goal is to admonish for change. And specifically, he holds himself out as an example of the change they should pursue. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Follow me. Now notice how Paul grounds his argument. It's verse 15. He says, for though you have many countless guides in Christ. In other words, though you have many spiritual influences in your life. Yet you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, in our day, what a father does doesn't determine what a son does. But that's not the way it was back then. Generally, whatever a father did, the son did. Paul appeals to that. I'm your father. I ministered the gospel to you. By God's grace, you believed and you became my spiritual children. Therefore, as my children, imitate me. Now, this may not resonate with us, but it would resonate with them. And he tells them why he sent Timothy, because Timothy's going to remind you of my ways in Jesus Christ as I teach them everywhere. Now, there's something I don't want you to miss here. Even though Paul has labored to put himself and Apollos and Cephas on on the same playing field, because they're, they're, they're exalting in one or the other one, okay? Paul doesn't for a moment shrink from calling them to follow him given his apostolic authority. And that makes total sense. 
He is a model of what the cross-shaped life should look like. He is an apostle. Of course they should listen to and follow the apostle Paul. It's not like, oh, well, Paul says this. I'm just, you know, that's cool. Somebody else says that. Paul says, no, you better listen to me and follow me. And there's applicability here to how you actually view me as your pastor. And Brad is your associate pastor and, and, and all the other elders. Now, let me be quick to say we are not apostles. <laughs> we do not have apostolic authority. No one does. But God has given us to you. And he has placed us in spiritual leadership over you. And he has charged us to shepherd you. So Redeeming Grace Church, you should follow us. When it comes to theological issues that you want to sort out, I hope you'll turn to us and not to the internet for clarity. It's kind of like sticking your head in a toilet bowl to find a gummy worm. You might. It's just not worth it. When it comes to struggles in life, I hope you'll turn to us. When it comes to struggles in life, I hope you'll turn to us and not the self-help section in Amazon and not the secular counselor down the street. When it comes to big decisions, moving, jobs, finances, relationships, I hope you'll seek us out. I I hope you'll say, help me think through this, BJ. Help me honor Christ through this, BJ. BJ, help me be shaped by the gospel in this. I think several things keep us from increasingly stepping into this and this increasingly characterizing our church and every church. I think an individualistic spirit keeps it from happening. We live in a highly independent society. That rubs off on us, so we tend not to reach out. I haven't found that true of myself when my dad came. It was the elders who first came to me and said, Hey, Buster, we haven't heard you come to us letting us know how you're doing and how you're thinking about these things and if certain things might need to be taken off your plate so you can glorify and honor God and do the things you need to do here and help with your dad. Why haven't you talked to us? I'm like, I... I don't know. Sorry. (laughs) Thanks. And then they shepherded me through the process. So an individualistic spirit keeps us from doing that. A perception towards authority that's negative keeps us from this. We live in a society that sees... Authority as increasingly bad and oppressive by nature instead of being good and a blessing by nature. So that rubs off on us too. I think our pride keeps us from this. The reality is most of us know we think best, especially when we're young. So younger folks, here I'm looking at 20s and early 30s. You have more confidence in yourself than you should have. You do. Pride keeps us from seeking counsel because we think we, we think we know. And a thought that we might even disagree with the analysis given. And if we disagree with the analysis given, what do we do? Because that means it's not going to be as easy for us to do what I want to do. So I think it'll be easier just to not ask for any thought. Brothers and sisters, God has given us to you to help shape your life according to the gospel. What a blessing. 
Please don't shy away from us. Please open up your lives to us. We love you and are for you. Paul loves the Corinthians. And that's why he says this. But of course, the Corinthian situation is pretty extreme. Their lives are being shaped more by the world than the cross. And so Paul is not only wooing them like I'm wooing you, he is warning them because they need it. What follows next is a threat, a fatherly threat. Look at verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. Notice even that humility in Paul. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Did your dad ever let you know something to the effect of, when I get home... I am going to find out this situation, whatever it may be, and we are going to deal with that. My my dad said that to me. That was frightful, okay? Those are frightful words. That's what Paul says here. I am coming, if the Lord wills, and I will find out your spiritual state. Notice he says this. He says, I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. What does he mean by that? He means that when when he comes, he's not looking for what they have to say about their relationship with Jesus. He's looking for whether the power of the gospel is having its way in their lives. So he's not looking for talk about Jesus. He's not looking for talk about their faith, for talk about how precious Jesus is, for talk about when they trusted Jesus as their Savior, for talk about all the things they've done for him. He's looking for whether the power of the cross is at work in their lives. Is sin being put to death? Is the fruit of the Spirit increasingly obvious? Have they responded to what I have written with repentance? Is there transformation and change? Are they still being shaped by the world or are they being shaped by the gospel? This is his burden for the Corinthians. They are saying they belong to the Savior, but they are not being shaped by the cross. This is untenable. You cannot profess faith in Jesus Christ with your lips, but then live your life in a way that does not demonstrate his transforming power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so they've got to repent. And his presence will either be sweet or severe, depending on how they respond. This is how important this is. God is so serious about the power of the cross shaping Christians that his ministers are not only to woo people to it, 
They are to enforce it with severity if need be. It's no accident that in the next chapter he's going to call them to exercise church discipline for a man whose life is not demonstrating the power of the gospel and who's living in open and unrepentant sin. It's no accident that that follows right on the heels of this. Why the severity? Because Jesus Christ is coming and with him a reward either positive or negative. So for those of you who are Christians, let me just wrap it up for a second. What should be our response to this text? I think it's a fresh commitment to a cross-shaped life. And I've got two thoughts for you that I would even ask you to write down. Number one is that life is not about me. And number two, life is not about now. Life is not about me. I am what I am by the grace of God. I am no better than anyone else. No one is beyond the saving grace of God. And life is about Jesus Christ. I want to know him more. I want to glorify him more. I want to speak about him more. I want to be identified with him more. Even if it makes me look the fool. Life is not about me. I hope that becomes increasingly true of all of us. And number two, life is not about now. Suffering before glory, the cross before the crown. I hope you remember that. Suffering before glory, the cross before the crown. When you think about hardship, let's not be shocked by hardship, okay? Let's not be shocked by it. Let's not be surprised by it. And let's not fight against it. It's okay that things are hard. That's the way God says it's going to be during the not yet of the kingdom. And he knows best. So we can trust him. And in the end, we get Jesus. And isn't that the best? So as we think about hardship, let's not be shocked by it. Let's not fight against it. It's okay that things are hard. Jesus is your treasure. And then let me just ask you, what are you really, what are you really shooting for? Are you living like your portion is in the here and now? Or are you living like Christ is your portion? Are you longing for stuff and ease and happiness and success and respect? Or are you longing for Jesus Christ to be glorified, come what may? What's really animating your actions and your lives? Is it Jesus Christ and Him crucified? May it increasingly be so. Because that's the shape of of the cross that we're called to embrace. 
And then one word here this morning to you who are here who are non-Christians. Paul's presence at the very end of this, he says, he says basically my presence is either going to be sweet or severe depending on how you respond to what I say right now. Can I just say to you, non-Christian, in a coming day, when you meet Jesus, His presence will either be sweet or severe depending upon how you respond to his cross message right now. If you turn from your sin and trust in him, which you can do right now, you will find him to be the sweetest and most wonderful and glorious treasure you could ever have, both now and later. But if you continue to to withhold yourself from him, to not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to live your own way, to say, I'm not religious, then you will find his presence to be severe, eternally severe, judgment, damnation, hell. But forgiveness can be yours even right now. All you need do, all you need do is trust him that his death and resurrection was sufficient to pay the price for your sins to say, I believe that and I'm going to bank my life on that and I'm going to live for him, not for me and I'm going to live for later, not for now and his presence will be sweet. I hope you'll respond. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hard things, but true things, wonderful things, gospel realities. Please continue to mold us and shape us into your image. Through Jesus' name we pray, amen.